Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. The moths streamed out of the forest, a fluffy brown cloud of soft, chalky wingbeats and long, twitching antennae. They flowed through the towns of central Oregon like thick fog, smothering streetlights, clogging ventilation systems, and blanketing sidewalks. The moths were everywhere. Perhaps one of the most famous stories was at the uh, Bend Elk Stadium, which is our local baseball team. And um, with all the outdoor lights at night, they had these, uh, you know, just huge amounts of moths that kind of descended on, on the baseball stadium. And they sort of lighted on all of the foul ball nets. And so every time a ball would hit the net, just hundreds of moths would go flying off the net. And some would go into the crowd and some would go onto the field and there's players swatting at them and there's fans swatting at them. And so um, it was just kind of this, you know, uh, when cultures collide, you know, when the natural world kind of breaks into our sort of normal everyday um, life in the summer. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting to be there and just see the, you know, kind of public respond to kind of having these hundreds of moths, uh, you know, or, you know, landing in their fears and landing on their, you know, in their nachos and things like that at the stadium. And then at the end of the night, they would literally, the, the staff would take leaf blowers and kind of go through and just blow all the, all the moths off of the sidewalk because there were just so, so many. So it, it really was this kind of situation, the natural world kind of crashing into our everyday life. After a few days, the moths began to die off. Their corpses were everywhere. This is Jen Landy Gillespie, and yeah, there were a lot of moths around, and mostly I saw them dead on the ground, and I've been here eight years, and I've never seen anything like that. They were really pretty, too, so it made me feel bad to see them dead everywhere, and uh, I'd like to know the reason why. I caught the tail end of the Pandora moth outbreak on a recent visit to Bend, Oregon. I lived in Bend for almost five years without seeing a single Pandora moth. This summer I saw thousands littering the streets and parking lots, mostly dead or dying. When I asked friends about the moths, I got shrugs. Nobody really knew what they were or where they came from. I was fascinated. Was this a foreign invader, a ravenous beast that would defoliate the state? Would its larvae overwhelm the town come spring? Turns out the Pandora moth is a native, and the outbreak is totally normal. The moths are always around, but every 8 to 10 years they have a tremendous population explosion. The furry moths swarm the forest for a few years, then return to normal population levels. I wanted to know more about the moth and why there were so many of them in Bend this summer, so I called Rob Flowers, an entomologist with the National Forest Service. He lives in Bend and saw the outbreak firsthand. That was Rob describing the infamous moth invasion at the Bend Baseball Stadium. We spoke via phone about the moth, the recent outbreak, and what it means for the forests of Central Oregon. Turns out the moth isn't really a plague after all, and is one of the more interesting insects in the mountain regions of the U.S. Plus, they're really frickin' cute. 
So the Pandora moth is one of our largest native moths, and um, they have a wingspan of about two and a half to four inches. Um, the, the moths are generally kind of grayish brown, but they have these really beautiful uh, rose-colored uh, hind wings, and they're also very, um, very hairy. Um, the the uh, larvae would be, uh, usually they start off with these shiny black heads and these brown or, or black bodies, and then with a few short dark hairs. Um, but then by uh, the time they finish developing, they're usually up to two inches long, kind of about the size of a AA battery, um, and usually yellowish green in color with these stout branch spines on their bodies. Pandora population explosions are pretty infrequent, which is why you can live in Central Oregon for more than a decade without seeing one. Uh, well, with, with most of our uh, forest insects, we they don't typically go into these outbreak-type um, size populations. So usually they exist along this continuum of just having a few insects out in the forest to having millions of these insects in the forest in, in terms of Pandora moth. So typically what happens is there's this slow buildup over about six to eight years. So the first um, year, so back in around 2015, we first started noticing some moths. And then we saw some larvae in 2016. And again, they were kind of at low levels, almost to the point where the public wouldn't perceive those. And then as we moved into 2016, 17, there were these increasing populations that people began to encounter them a bit more commonly. They tend to be really attracted to um, lights at night. So if you have lights, exterior lights on your home, you would see these moths showing up. If you were out biking or hiking in the forest, you may see these larvae climbing down from the trees and going into the soil. So started getting a lot of questions about those. And then really 2018, 2019 was really our big year of the population explosion. And so what that looked like in terms of the larvae is they were um, fairly um, heavy defoliation over um, about 145,000 acres is what we estimated at in Central Oregon. So this large scale defoliation, they would eat all the needles off these trees um, usually it's ponderosa pine or lodgepole pine is their preferred, um, their preferred food. And so we would see all these trees that were stripped. Um, people were driving down the highways, getting very concerned about what looked like dying trees. Um, that was the effect of basically these, these very hungry larvae consuming all that foliage. Um, and then those larvae became the adults that then in 2019, we just had this really large explosion of the population. So um, what you typically see is at, say, a gas station at night, you would just see thousands of these moths all around the lights, um, you know, on people's cars. They were kind of all over the place, um, yeah, to the point where, uh, you know, we were getting calls from businesses and others, uh, you know, in the, in the community as far as what, what they could do to prevent um, these large numbers of moths descending on their on their lights at night and so um, so yeah it just became this um, really kind of you know public concern because there were so many moths occupying these areas at night around these businesses so how many moths are we talking about it's almost impossible to tell without an extensive forest surveillance network but it's probably safe to put their numbers in the millions yeah we really don't know i mean it's, it's something that would be incredibly hard to quantify because you do mm -hmm. have you know all of the all of them that are existing in forest environments that we're not really perceiving on any, you know, regular basis. We're really just seeing what um, kind of comes into our our urban community forest areas, what's in and around our homes and and places like that. We're not really observing it on the whole, but yeah, I would estimate it would be in the millions or 
larger in terms of just the amount of defoliation that we saw um, in 2018 and then just the number of moths we saw this year. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. And it was a really long, it was a really long period this year too. It seemed like there's definitely kind of environmental conditions that seem to interact with the life cycle. And so um, it definitely seemed like we had a very um, long amount of adult activity this year. So um, just in terms of the number of calls I was receiving over over that time. So, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's but yeah, it's really hard to it's really hard to kind of quantify that. Our best estimates as far as comparing now to historical usually winds up being we do these these forest health aerial surveys where we actually go around and try to um, you know document how much of the forest area was affected. So we can kind of look back historically and see that these outbreaks have occurred and the similar areas to a similar size that they've been at least in the you know uh, the last several decades that we've been been doing this so the long life cycle of the moth also makes it difficult to get an accurate count they live for about two years which is a long time for an insect the caterpillars hatch in the spring eat all summer endure the freezing and snowing winter then climb down out of the pine trees they weave their cocoons among the rough volcanic rocks that litter the forest floor and emerge in the summertime as full-grown moths. They party, then start laying eggs all over the place. Um, well, the life cycle, it usually consists of, so um, for the example, this summer when the moths are active, um, usually those adults are laying eggs in July and August. And that can be on foliage, bark, sometimes it's on the side of buildings or other structures. Um, typically, when it's more of an enforced environment, the young larvae will hatch usually in August or September, and then they'll move up into the trees um, and begin feeding on the needles. And then those uh, larvae actually overwinter as larvae, so they'll kind of cluster together at the base of the needles to, to stay warm and ride out the winter. And then um, even, they can even periodically, they'll resume feeding on warm days in the winter. And then at that stage, you usually don't see the caterpillars. It's pretty difficult to, to actually observe them. Um, but then in uh, the following spring, so in March, April of the next year, usually they'll continue feeding into late June or early July. And, and it's usually the phase when the caterpillars finish feeding and they start moving down the trees into the soil. So they actually burrow into the soil um, to pupate before they emerge as adults. And that's usually the period where most people will see them. Um, and then, so in the soil, they will transform into the adult moth. And, um, and then they'll emerge, you know, and kind of resume the, the cycle. So, yeah, in told, it takes about two years for them to complete their life cycle. And um, there are some moths that have a two-year life cycle like this. Others have an annual life cycle. And so, yeah, they, they definitely, you know, it tends to be on the longer side in terms of the development relative to some of their, their uh, closely related species. The caterpillars eat a lot. The Forest Service estimates that they munch their way through 145,000 acres of pine forest, but the trees can take it. It's advantageous for the trees as well, because um, if you're a tree growing in the forest and you're going to have your needles eaten off, it's, it's advantageous to have a year of growing um, in between so you don't get this annual defoliation. It's this every other year defoliation that occurs. And so um, we usually see that trees are able to survive these types of outbreaks better than perhaps with some other defoliating insects just because they do get that year off of, of uh, pressure from the defoliation so they can continue to grow and, and um, sort of be free of the insects for, for one year um, before they're faced with that, you know, again. 
In fact, there's a long history of moth outbreaks in the region, both written on paper and in the tree rings. Because, you know, we have a long history of these insects. The first recorded, you know, outbreak was in the 1890s. It was on in, in uh, some tribal lands in, in Klamath County. And so um, we have like documentation going back that far as far as recorded history. And then we also have, um, we can look at the tree rings and we can actually date these things back hundreds of years. And um, through tree ring analysis, you can actually detect um, periods of defoliation versus other types of stress in the trees um, from drought or from, from other types of fire and other injury. Uh, and so we can actually backdate this for hundreds of years by looking at some of these really old ponderosa pine in the area. And so we know that we have this long history and association with this insect in Central Oregon. Pandora outbreaks typically last for eight to six years before the population collapse. On the tail end of these outbreaks, we do see a lot of activity from their normal natural enemies. So there's a number of predators. There's both mammal predators. There's insect predators. Um, there's insect parasites as well that kind of will will increase their populations as the populations of Pandora moth rise. But it does seem with a lot of the caterpillars, um, it's really these diseases that help control or end the outbreaks. And usually what that happens is almost you could think about it in terms of the flu. Um, if you have a lot more insects out there that are able to contact each other, it's easier to pass around these viruses. And so it's usually a larval to larval spread of the virus that happens. And then that can very quickly move through a population and cause the collapse of that population. And so this is a naturally occurring virus that um, is in the population, but it really doesn't get expressed in terms of doing a lot of damage until you get a large population of insects that are encountering each other. And so as they um, continue to interact and spread the virus around, you usually go through this really um, rapid decline of the population. It almost just disappears in a single year. So it's, it's as much uh, of a mystery on the front end and the initiation as it is on the tail end when we just see these things collapse, you know. Um, but, but typically it seems that the time period for that to occur takes in that six to eight year window of time is really the, the amount of time it takes for that cycle to play out of sort of rise, you know, peak, fall. Um, but yeah, it's really those diseases that move through the populations very quickly that tend to bring about the end of the outbreaks. But while the moths are around, they're an important food source for the animals and, in the past, the people who live in the forest. The tribes who once lived throughout the forests of central Oregon used to harvest Pandora moth caterpillars. They made a kind of grub jerky out of them and used them in stews throughout the harsh winters. So yes, we actually do have this history of the tribes that occupied the high desert uh, using Pandora moth as a food source. And um, they would typically collect the larvae. So usually when the larvae are moving down from the trees, they move down into the soil. So it'd be fairly easy to collect. Um, and then, so they would take all these larvae and they would actually kind of fire roast them in these soil pits um, so that you could kind of burn all the hairs off. You wouldn't want to try to eat these, these spines and, and these hairs that are on the, the larvae. And then that would preserve them in such a way that they could basically have them as a as a snack, you know, it's a caterpillar jerky, for lack of a better word. Um, but they could certainly um, use those during the winter whenever there was um, uh, less food available. And um, I've read stories about the preparation in terms of that they would use them in stews and soups and other things like that, basically rehydrate these in the, in the winter as a protein, a carbohydrate food source that was readily available because you could collect them in large numbers. But um, I've actually asked several uh, 
tribal members that I've that I've encountered over the years if they've if this is still a normal practice and I haven't really run across this something that they still do as sort of part of preserving tribal cultures but um, I would really like to uh, kind of uh, find out you know what the exact procedures and recipes are for these things I think it'd be really interesting just in, in light of uh, a lot of other cultures around the world you know currently use insects for, for various types of, of food supplements and otherwise and so um, but yeah, I've not personally tried these uh, before, so I can't really, you know, testify as to how uh, how tasty they are. But um, I I would assume that this was more a product of really having a limited food environment. It's, you're really trying to kind of gather and collect as much as you could to to survive the winter. Um, but but with that said, it, it would be interesting to to sort of see what it would actually taste like. Pandora moth outbreaks are fascinating natural events and part of a unique and complex American ecosystem. Sure, it's a pain to clean up after them, but it's a spectacle to behold. We're part of this dance that's happened for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years here in, in our area, and we just happen to be kind of in the middle of it right now. <laughs> so uh, look at it more as like, I have this opportunity to witness this incredible natural event rather than really focusing on the fact that I have moths all over my front porch, you know. So what about the name Pandora Moth? It was first described by entomologist C.A. Blake in 1863 in the Proceedings of the Entomological Society of Philadelphia. He wrote a detailed description of the moth, including its name, but didn't mention who gave it the name to begin with. It's a pretty safe bet that it got the name Pandora after the first outbreak was observed by a Westerner. Pandora was the first human woman according to Greek mythology. She opened up a jar, not a box, that was a mistranslation, and unleashed evil upon the world. Of course, the Pandora moth wasn't evil, but the population explosion probably seemed like something out of a myth to early Western travelers. Nowadays, the story of Pandora is considered to be pretty misogynistic. I mean, it totally reads like it was written by Pandora's disgruntled ex-boyfriend. But I digress. Pandora moths aren't a threat to Central Oregon forests by themselves, but they could contribute to a rapidly worsening situation. It's getting hotter and drier, which stresses the trees. If the trees are already stressed from a dry summer, a Pandora outbreak could do some harm. But really, the most danger to the forest comes from hotter, drier summers and poor forest management. We've been suppressing forest fires for a long time, and as a result, there's a lot of flammable undergrowth that could flare up. One way to look at it would be that it's just a, a very uh, normal natural cycle. And so the, the trees that are existing in forest environments, when they are defoliated like this, they tend to recover because they do have that year off but as the life cycle continues and you only get that one year of kind of defoliation and they get a chance to grow again. Um, but we've, we've looked at it, um, at least in terms of some of the work they've done historically, they haven't really found a lot of mortality in trees. So a lot of these trees that get defoliated, they bounce back and they survive. We don't often see them dying, except in cases of really severe droughts or in cases where you have ongoing bark beetle epidemics. And so uh, those insects can, can basically take advantage of the fact that these trees are in a weakened condition. They can go in and, and kill some of those trees. But we, we see that the amount of mortality that occurs now, at least what we're observing, has been consistent with what we've had historically. So we're really concerned about losing lots of trees to these native insect cycles. Um, but what is concerning is as far as what the future may hold, because 
especially as it relates to climate and sort of environmental stress in Central Oregon. Um, what a lot of the climate models would suggest is that we're going to have these warmer, wetter winters, and then we're going to have these hotter, drier summers. And so overall, you have a net drying effect. You have these um, prolonged drought cycles that are kind of one of the expectations and more severe drought stress and heat stress on these trees. Um, and these trees are also growing in an environment where we've suppressed fire for a very long time. And so you have higher densities in these forests. You have species composition. Trees that normally would not be there because they would have been excluded by fire are there now. And so the stress associated with the combination of those things is something that we do worry about in the future in terms of actually seeing a lot more tree mortality related to these type of uh, events. Um, and that's really an unknown at this point, but um, a lot of our efforts are uh, at least on the forest service side of things on national forest lands was trying to um, kind of restore those forests back to more of their um, historic condition to be able to um, allow them to be more resilient to these type of events when they occur. Um, because it does create a very short-term stress situation that we would hope most trees would be able to survive. But certainly as you get the compounding of these factors, so you have the insects, plus you have uh, more fire, plus you have drought conditions. Um, we may actually see a lot of, you know, increase in terms of the extent and the, the duration um, of the mortality events that occur in terms of, of trees dying. Luckily, helping to prevent forest fires is something pretty much anyone who lives near a forest can do. First and most obviously, don't have campfires or play with fireworks in the woods in the summer or fall. In fact, don't play with fireworks anywhere in the woods at any time of the year. In double fact, just don't play with fireworks. Also, you can volunteer to help the Forest Service maintain the forests and prevent forest fires. You know, public involvement is really key. I mean, we as like resource professionals, we have a very limited ability to do, you know, a lot of times these, these larger scale projects that you really need to try to approach things from a landscape level, you know, like our, one of our real key phrases now is all lands, you know, thinking about national forest lands as well as the state and private lands that are next to them and trying to, you know, um, enact the work that we do over all those landscapes. And so um, we do have a lot of volunteer opportunities. You can jump in on the in sort of a citizen science capacity or in terms of doing um, some of the other, you know, work and maintenance activities we have in the forest or helping with um, educational um uh, exhibits and other things like that. So discoveryourforest.org is our kind of main arm of being able to um, really provide people opportunities to be able to, to step into, um, you know, a forest environment and be able to help something they can do locally in their own backyard to be able to, you know, um, at least, um, you know, encourage them to be more engaged and, and to help preserve forests for future generations. So, yeah, it's something that, you know, we ourselves um, have very limited capacity to be able to enact the types of change that we need, but you know, when everyone is contributing and everyone's jumping in on and assisting in those type of efforts, it, it certainly is, um, I think, uh, extremely helpful and just allows us to be able to you know, accomplish a lot more. Again, that was discoveryourforest.org. Go visit the website and see how you can help out. Just a few hours of your time can make a big difference. Plus, you go get to hang out in nature with cool people like Rob Flowers. That's it for this episode. Thanks for sticking around during my long summer absence. More cool stuff to come, including a podcast about the most metal alternative fuel ever, Metal Powder.
you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. If you like what you hear, give me a review. It really helps. There's sort of this public conception that we've kind of figured everything out in terms of, you know, these, these really common uh, natural environment or environmental events that happen. But it's the, the reality is we really, there's still a lot of mystery to it. Nature always kind of surprises us. So, so as a scientist, I enjoy that sort of aspect of it, that we just never really know everything that we think we know. You know, there's always something new and interesting that emerges that, uh, you know, surprises you.